The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. 2 Timothy 4. We're going to actually now go uh, back into the text that we looked at last night briefly. And uh, we're, we're actually going to... I, I talked through this um, a couple years ago at Iron on Iron, or at least part of this text. But uh, felt like, I don't know, a strong need to, uh, to go back or compelling to go back to this and rewrote the sermon. Knew uh, I had to go back and look at, um, on the website and see, man, what, did, what was the outline? What did we put? Um, you know, what, what approach did I take to that? And um, so did that. And now we're back. And I want to zero in. It's a, it's a lengthy passage of scriptures, 22 verses just zero in on a couple of things. We're going to move quickly because I want to cover the whole chapter, um, but I'm not going to um, drill deeply into verse by verse the whole chapter. I'm going to really focus on uh, the idea that Paul is finishing his race. Paul's finishing his race. And so um, in, in light of that, wherever we are in our race, the ministry race that God's called us to, or the personal testimony, walk with Christ, race of holiness that we're each engaged in. Um, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to, how, like, okay, to pare it down? How do you go from today till the day that you got to look Jesus in the eyeball? How do you get from here to there and transition having not fallen away, having not walked away, having, and finish strong? Y'all know a whole bunch of people don't finish strong. That's why we wanted Mark here today. Guy in his 70s, still getting it done, still doing the work. And now in this patriarchal sort of sage type role, imparting wisdom from experience, how do we get to play that role, whether you're in ministry full time or vocationally or not? And so I want to look at Paul's last words. Uh, I want to tell you, thank you for coming. Um, we, we do this event um, as a resource to student pastors, we also do it as an opportunity for you to come check Snowbird out without committing to bring your students. Um, and we actually, every year, we'll, we'll book several um, new churches and groups off of this event that'll start partnering with Snowbird, bringing students. But you get to see a little bit about who we are, what we're about, philosophy behind how we do what we do, why we do what we do, um, learning our mission statement. Um, so thank you for coming. All right, let's dive in. Second Timothy chapter four. Background of this text is Paul is facing death by execution. Um, we mentioned last night that if you read Acts 21 through 28, it's, this, it's that eight chapter build up to where he ends up in prison. And then he writes this last letter to Timothy. Timothy is a young man who is a product of, Paul, of Paul's ministry. I remember hearing a youth pastor say to me one time, he was commending or recommending a, a young man to come serve, a young lady to come serve on our summer staff. And he said, he, he was trying to let me know what he thought of her. And he said, she is the student that has come out of our ministry that I would want to represent me in any arena and go stand in my place and represent me. She's the fruit of ministry. It's easy to get caught up in the ones that walk away the ones that fall away, the ones that drift away, the ones that turn away. But 
I appreciated John shining a light this morning on the fact that a bunch of people are not falling away. A bunch of people are not walking away. A bunch of people are going to one day mourn your passing from this death into eternal, from this life into eternal life with memories of the impact that you made in their lives. That's fresh on my mind this week. God's going to be faithful. He's always going to be faithful. So even when it's like pastors are walking, how, how crazy, uh, I don't know if Mark knew about Josh Harris. Did y'all catch that today? I kissed dating goodbye. Yeah, uh, and kissed Jesus goodbye too, didn't he? What do you do with that? You don't do anything with it. You keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus didn't kiss anything goodbye. Except death after he whipped it. Like, like, don't get fixated even on people you've got blood, sweat, and investment in. Even your own sons and daughters who turn away. Trust that the power of the gospel is the only thing that's going to bring them back. But it is the one thing that can and will bring them back. Trust that. So Paul is, is speaking to a man who he would say, let him represent my ministry. He invested in this young man, trained him up, raised him up. And Timothy is now a faithful pastor and minister. He's leading people um, and, and, and discipling the church. And Paul's very proud of Timothy and the work that God's doing. And so he wants to leave parting words, final words to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What would be really fun would be to unpack that verse and nothing else. I would challenge and encourage you to often go back to that verse. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Just a word about this. A lot of us, we gravitate towards a teaching style where we want to we build up and lift up, but we want to be careful. A lot of us gravitate towards the teaching style where we want to make sure that we're coming hard and fast and aggressive. He's telling us we've got to do both these things. Like there's going to be a time for hard teaching and confrontation, but there's also a need to build up and encourage. But the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Are we there? And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says, preach the word. Just two verses before where we started, he says this, all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So he says, preach the word. And as you preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. And what you're preaching is, what's been breathed out by God and is profitable before rebuke, correction, and teaching, and training in righteousness. You don't have to come up with it. Just teach it. You rightly divide it. He would also admonish Timothy. He says all scriptures breathed out. This is the Old and New Testaments. Nothing more, nothing less. 
Peter said that none of the Old Testament writers and prophets were writing of their own volition or intellect, but rather they were carried along by the Holy Spirit who was using them and writing through them. He says this in 2 Peter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Consider what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament Torah, which we know of as the law. He said that every bit of it is from God and is good and it will not pass away but will stand the test of time and history, Matthew 5, 18. Consider the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of you are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls and and, and those findings in 1948, I believe it was. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This means it was written after the time of Alexander the Great's conquest of the world which would have happened between the time of the final writings of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus, meaning the Hebrew Bible would have been translated into Greek during this period of time. This Greek translation was referred to as the Septuagint, and copies, original copies of the Septuagint were found in the 1940s, preserved by the salt in the air of the Dead Sea area in the caves around the Dead Sea in Israel, and the accuracy with which they lined up with modern, meticulous translations of Scripture was over 99.5%. We can trust that the scripture we have is the scripture as God gave it to us. Nothing's been changed. So why would we change it? It's breathed out, literally. The idea is that the word of God is the breath of God. This comes from God and his very existence and nature is supernatural. The word of God is living. The word of God is alive. The word of God is active. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. The word of God has power that is unmatched in literature, science, history, and philosophy. The word of God never need be apologized for or made excusable. When the word of God and the culture or philosophy of the world collide in conflict and contradiction, the word of God is always correct and authoritative. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be embarrassed by that. And don't apologize for that. If you are and if you must, you need to find another vocation now. The word of God is owing to no man, no philosopher, no historian. And yet we have it today because godly men and women were willing to die to preserve it and pass it through the generations. The word of God depends on no man, nor has it ever. God's word is never judged by the reader or the hearer, but is always judging the reader or the hearer. When we approach the word of God, we are to come with 
fear and trembling, but with excitement and anticipation. Paul tells Timothy as a pastor to rightly divide or properly handle the word of God. I've heard the saying, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. The word of God will harden a rebellious and unteachable man in his sin, but will literally conform a man of humility into the very image of Jesus Christ. God's word will chip and chisel away the godless things and areas in my life that hinder my sanctification and Christ-likeness. Through God's word at work in my life, I will stand against the devil, against temptation, hardship, anxiety, depression, sexual sin, insecurity, addiction, worldly fear, cowardice, and any refusal to worship Christ, proclaim Christ, or obey Christ. God's word will drive our relationships, our purity, and it will appropriate our passions. God's word is the sword which the Spirit wields in my life to rage and war against sin and temptation and to conquer strongholds. God's word gives me that divine power for tearing down the strongholds that defeat and intimidate me or maybe worse yet, that drive me to carelessness and complacency in my own pursuit of holiness and godliness. God's word is the most powerful tool in my life and in the world, but it is only effective when I approach it to be shaped by it, and when I approach it to know God more, to know God as he ought to be known, and to see him for who he is, in his glory revealed to me, Jesus made it clear in his time on earth that he came to reveal the glory of God to us, and the word of God drives at that same revelation. In the word of God, we see Christ, and at the center of that knowledge, we see him crucified, buried, raised, ascended, reigning and ruling on high. And in all of this, we see the glory of God over us, which is the power that will change us and keep changing us. Oh yeah, the grass withers, the flowers fade, kingdoms rise, movements rise, ideological movements will come against the gospel of Jesus Christ, but those kingdoms will fall and those movements will fall and history will march forward and people will be born and people will die, but the word of our Lord stands and will remain forever. We need the word of God. Our spiritual lives depend on it and our ministries will live by that or they'll die by that. Guaranteed. Paul understood this. And he was convicted and driven by this. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's talk about that. He says that he's about to be poured out as a drink offering. It's a really powerful picture because a drink offering, what he's saying is my life is about to be poured out. Literally, I'm about to be poured out. Um, the, the one place in scripture where uh, I think the vivid reality of, of what a drink offering is, there's a story where David is with a group of, of his men. This is when David is in exile. It's before he's king. He's in the caves. He's living in these caves. He's got all these guys that are, that are walking like, like with him, following him. And they're, they're it's kind of like uh, we watched uh, last week, my family and I watched the old Kevin Costner, Robin Hood. Um, 
which is really bad acting, man. It's so bad. His British accent is atrocious. It's just hilarious. And his kind of a mullet, but it was like early 90s, so transitioning out of that. And so it was like he's losing his hair. Buddy's trying to keep, I don't know, it's like, it's bad. But it's not, I'd, I'd gotten excited because all I remember of that movie is the Brian Adams song, you know. And I was like, this is going to be awesome, man. Y'all are going to love this. And then I, and so we all gather around, and Little was like, oh, it's this one. I thought it was like print, uh, Men in Tights. And I was like, you remember that one? Like, that's the real Robin Hood, you know. And, and, or the Shrek scene, you know. Like, um, and, but the idea of like take from the rich and give to the poor, like be a, be a criminal for the people. David was that before he was king. If you're here this summer, we talked about that. And so David is living in the mountains and he makes a statement, man, I give anything to have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. And he's, you know, three of his mighty men go down there. They fight their way to the well. They take a bottle of water. They fight their way back. It's 13 miles one way. They basically run a marathon with a, a battle, a hand-to-hand, blades drawn, three against 300 kind of battle in the middle of it. They come back, they bring him water, and he goes, whoa. And he pours it out on the ground. You know, was he pouring one out for his homies? Nobody died, you know, like what's happening here? And, and, and I remember for years I would read that, and I'd be like, what is he doing? That's so offensive. I'm one of those people I was raised like, if food is put in front of you, you eat it. I have gotten sick in some third world countries because of that philosophy. I, I need to adapt to that. I think I'm old enough now to not follow that rule. But, uh, but, but they, I'm like, why is he pouring the water out? And then, then you realize he says, I would not drink this. This co- could have cost you your lives. And he turns it into an act of worship. So he takes their sacrificial act and he turns it into a moment of worship rather than drink it. He pours it out as a gift to the Lord. The drink offering was a beautiful picture of worship in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, I'm being poured out like that. My life is done. I'm being poured out as an offer. I've lived my life for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for the advance of the gospel. So let's break down this, this, this three tiers. I've, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. How did he fight the good fight? Well, I jotted a few things down. You'll notice it on my PowerPoint. Just kidding. You've been coming here long enough. You know, I'm not that guy. I need to be that guy. I apologize. I got to do better. I'm, 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 my, my New Year's resolution is to lose 30 pounds and start doing PowerPoint. So not really. I'm totally making all of that up. Okay, so just got to hang on, all right? So fight the good fight. Tell us, Paul, how do we do that? What did you fight against? What are you fighting against, right? He said, we don't beat the air. We're not shadow boxing. We're not, you know, like, man, I look good when I'm boxing nobody. Like, ooh, that's a, tuck that chin, stick that jab. Whoa, that looks good. But then, like, what if there's a better boxer on the other side of that? That's a different animal, you know? Like, now it's like, he's like, we're not boxing against, we're not beating the air. We're not, we're in a war. So how did he fight the good fight of faith? Well, he fought against pagan ideology, against secular or progressive Christianity, against legalism, against friends who were straying down a path of Judaism, against the flesh and all of its demands and desires, against anxiety and depression, against the seductions of money and power, against the lure of fame and the approval of men, against false teachers, and often against false teaching against Satan himself, against 
principalities and powers of darkness, against complacency and laziness and apathy, against apostasy and deconstruction and drifting from the faith, and against comfort. There's, there's, there's two places that stand out to me where he's fighting against the lure of the approval of men. You know, he says in Galatians, he says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? If I'm trying to win the approval of men, then I'm not a slave of Jesus. But I'm a slave of Jesus, so why would I try to win the approval of men? And there's two places where I think that personifies in his writings. One is people are attributing things to people other than Paul. They're kind of hold this guy's better than you. This guy's doing it better. And he's like, I don't care who's doing it better. I, don't, I, don't, that's just, I do not care about that as long as the gospel is advancing. He's in prison, and people start using the gospel message to try to get him in more trouble. It's kind of like, like inciting riotous violence. Like, well, we're just preaching Paul's message. He's like, then let him preach it. And people on the outside, like, they're trying to use your momentum to gain fame. Now you got false teachers trying to proclaim the gospel, but then to, to profit off of it. He's like, no, I trust the power of the gospel. Like, he didn't care who was getting credit or what. He didn't get distracted. He was selfless. He fought the good fight. How did he do that? We said it last night because he was faithful from day one till day whatever it was when he went to see Jesus. He was faithful. Just be faithful. Faithful produces and drives consistency. Be faithful, be consistent. Then he says, I finished the race. He said to the, to the Philippians, we're running a race and that a prize awaits us at the finish line. The race requires diligence and dedication and a refusal to quit. There will be times where we want to quit or sit down or give up. Decided I was going to take up jogging one day. Bunch of guys around here jog. You heard Spencer talking about it today. Zach and John and Blair and there's Harry. They're all, these guys are all runners. They're joggers. They'll go out, but they'll jog for like 10 miles. And I went out and jogged for one. And I realized, big people don't jog. We stand and fight and then eat. I was like, what am I doing? But then I was like, I got convicted about being a quitter because I only ran one mile. I was like, them boys running 10 miles. I can run five. Got them big dogs going. Made it about three and quit. I'm a quitter. I'm a quitter. I admit it. I'm a quitter. I can't imagine. Some of y'all have run marathons. You are out of your mind. Why would you do that on purpose? If you're not trying to save your child's life or rescue a whole nation of people from becoming obsolete or like Paul compares the Christian life to a race. We're, we're about a month ago, we went it was Little's birthday, and a bunch of us on her birthday over here, we go to this place called Turtleback Falls. And, uh, man, it's awesome. You got to walk, I don't know, it's a mile and a half, two miles in. I don't know, I walk it. I don't know if you jogged it, how long it take. And so walk in there, and first you got, yeah, uh, there's, this, there's this waterfall called Rainbow Falls. Man, it's awesome. It's so big. A lot of waterfalls in this area. And uh, Rainbow Falls, and then you look at it, it's pretty, there's swimming hole down there. Well, Turtleback Falls is one of these deals where you get up on top of the waterfall, and instead of a big, steep drop-off, it's like this rolling rock. And then you drop 
and fall maybe 10 feet, 12 feet, I don't know, and land maybe 15 feet. I mean, you land in the water, you swim out, and you climb around and do it again. There's a lot of, always a lot of people there. Well, almost two miles down in there, and some, too many people went at once. Hillbilly's not the smartest people, man. Like, this is not even hard not to do. Don't go when somebody else is going. But we, we, we struggle sometimes. Anyway, a little, little ends up, there's like a knee to the head, and a sh- like it was like bodies and elbows and knees, and, and bam, 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 this big explosion. And like, she comes up, and I can see it on her face. I'd, I was standing out of the water, and I could see it on her face. I'm like, oh, man, it, looked, it was like a panic a little bit. You know, like, oh, gosh, she's, and I saw her get hit in the, in the side of the, I mean, from 15 feet, and lands on a shoulder head first. She's diving off, the, she slides down this waterfall, spins and dives off. Which, you've you got to recognize how old you are. <laughs> when you're in student ministry. And really, some of you don't realize that yet. And that might be the one thing you take away from this. Your ACLs, you only got two of them. Pick up basketball and ultimate frisbee has a shelf life in your ministry. Don't be ashamed to quit playing that mess, all right? Don't be ashamed. You play knockout, whatever. You can't be in there rocking the Gaga wars with 13-year-old middle schoolers. It's not going to end well for you, okay, especially if you're competitive, all right? But anyway, so off she goes, bam, head, and I'm like, oh, man, it's bad. So we're thinking for sure concussion, you know, it's blood squirting out of facial orifices and like, you know, okay, this is not good and like cheekbone. I'm thinking there's, there's like distortion to the cheekbone and the eye socket. I'm like, this is terrible. So we got, what are you going to do? Not going, phone don't work. So we walked out. And I'm like, let's just start walking. So everybody jumped in, so we'll grab y'all stuff. So we just start walking. And 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 then we were gonna walk to the truck, and then when we get to the truck, it's about an hour and fifteen minutes to a close to an ER. But I'm like, okay, if I gotta carry you, this is gonna be rough, you know, like and so but we're about an hour into the walk, we're or forty five minutes. It's, it was forty five minutes to an hour to get up and out of there into the truck. And I remember probably 45 minutes in and I'm like are you good and she's just just trudging along and she said I, I can't I said do you need to stop and she said I cannot stop if I stop I'll be done right where I stop I can't sit down I gotta keep moving how you feeling she couldn't talk she said, I can't stop I can't stop heads killing her jaws jack busted like but don't stop I'm like that's it that'll preach when you're when you're a preacher Everything turns into an illustration, even in most inopportune times. I remember I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> notes app open, you know. Got no phone service, but I can make a note. Man, like, we ended up spending the evening in the ER with, 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 you know, a severe concussion, but it was like one foot in front of the other. That's it, man. That's it. That's how, that's how Paul finished the race was one foot in front of the other. What, what were those feet? I ain't trying to be no hokey, goofy preacher, but faithfulness and consistency, man. That's the, that's the steps of the, of the Christian life. Faithfulness, consistency. And lastly, he said, I kept the faith. When others turned away, when friends turned on Paul, when he was beaten, whipped, 
bruised, battered, starved, left in the streets, naked and alone, cast out of his own community. When Jesus didn't come back in Paul's lifetime, even though it was prophesied, expected, and predicted that he would. When the majority went against him. When ministry partners and confidants abandoned him and even turned on him. When he was threatened with death, he kept the faith. He was faithful and consistent. And why? Because henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He was striving for the prize. What's the how? How did he do this? Galatians 2.20, he wrote this. I'm crucified with Christ. I, when Christ died, that's, that, is, that is the application of the gospel in our lives. We died with him. I no longer live. It's not me that's living. It's Christ living in me. The life that I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's the how. Galatians 2.20 is the how. Romans 12.1 and 2 is the how. Die daily. Daily a living sacrifice. Verse 9. Read this section as our conclusion. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Some of Paul's saddest words right there. He's in love with it. He's not, he's not gossiping, by the way. He's not talking down to Demas. He's brokenhearted. You know this feeling. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent... To Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, all the books and above all the parchments. He said, man, I need my coat, and I need somebody here to hold me up. I'm in my darkest hour, and I need some brothers around me, and I'm cold, and I don't have my books. I don't have the scripture. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. In other words, he's not saying God will get him, but he's saying leave that in the hands of the Lord. I can't control that. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. There's a good principle there where as, as shrewd leaders, it's not, it's not like condemnatory or judgmental to recognize that someone is dangerous to the flock and to, and to address that. Uh, who am I to judge? You ain't ju- you, it's, you're not to judge. But you are to lead with shrewd discernment. And there are going to be times where people are in the midst of your ministry that need to not be there. Need to not be there. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a benediction. That's a powerful benediction. Take something from a message that I shared two years ago from this text. Uh, I do want to pull this from that. Paul had a living hope. 
in Christ through the power of his resurrection and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, we have been given a living hope. We serve a risen Savior. Our King sits on a throne where he has been exalted to his rightful position of sovereign authority over heaven and earth. Angels bow before him. Demons shudder and tremble at the very sound of his name. The prophets preach of his coming. The apostles proclaim the power of his resurrection. The saints worship him day and night. And men of God have bled and died to preserve and advance the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus for 2,000 years. And every page of the word of God is laced together with the centrality and the redemptive story of his work. That's why we had a breakout session about that today. Paul admonished the church to keep her eyes on Jesus. He is the perfecter, the finisher of the faith that he has begun in us. Heaven and earth are held together by Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. And by him are all things held together. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the head of the church. He came to earth in humility, clothed in poverty. Born in a filthy barn under the tyrannical rule of demonic earthly kings and governors. But he is returning as the conquering king riding on a war horse with a tattoo on his thigh that says king of kings. And he will wear the crowns of the conquering king. The robe he is clothed in will be drenched in blood as is the salvation he has given to you and I. And he will bear a sword with which he will strike down all of his neutered enemies. He's gone to prepare a place for us in a kingdom that will never end and in which there will never be a need for the sun to shine because on its brightest day, the sun would be drowned out by the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. And he will assault the domain of darkness one final time. And by his holy and righteous judgment, he will consume the earth and the sky and his enemies with fire. And then he will hand you and I our own crowns and say these words. I want you to listen. I want you to listen. He'll look at you and say, well done. I want you to imagine that. Imagine that. Hearing Jesus say those words. You loved well. You served well. Your daddy never told you you did well. Your mama abandoned you. Your senior, senior pastor was hard to deal with. You had parents that couldn't stand you. You had students that turned away. But there's one opinion that matters. Well done. You were a faithful slave. Brothers and sisters, that is what we're running for. That is what we're fighting for. So let's fight well. Let's run hard. Let's put one foot of faithfulness in front of the other. Let's put one foot of consistency in front of the other. And let's win the crown that we will then lay at the feet of Jesus. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as we close out this time together, at least the formal time together, there will no doubt be Time to visit and go get supper for those that are going to stay over tonight and spend another night here. There'll be fellowship and time for reflection and introspection. God, I pray that, that we would take the words of the Apostle Paul, 
your words through his pen to heart that we would labor for the prize that awaits and do so shamelessly but that we would also be consumed with zeal for the gospel and with compassion and mercy for the students that you've called us to minister to, that we'd love them well, we'd care for them, that we'd be intentional with them, that we would be inconvenienced and uncomfortable at times and embrace those moments willingly and happily for the joy that is set before us in the ministry you've called us to. And may the fruit of our labor be the reward that you receive to give back to us as a crown that we give back to you when we hear those words, well done. We love you, Jesus. We sing to you now in our time together songs of praise and worship because you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.